Well, this morning on Memorial Day weekend, this is the sixth installment of a series that we're calling Courageous Conversations. Uh, It's an opportunity for me to preach and then for you to drive off the campus and think, man, I'm glad I don't have his job. If you brought a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, you know me. We'll get there in a moment. The passages will be on the screen. If you don't want to turn, there's a bit of intimidation, intimidation factor for some of us. But uh, hey, we lo- love and want to honor those of you who did bring your Bibles. Luke 16 is the place. Before Luke 16, uh, check out this passage in Isaiah. It says this, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. What is this stuff about dew and dust and dwelling and death? So here's our question this morning. The question that we're looking at in the time that we have is, what happens after you die? That, that uh, what happens, uh, I was thinking of a title, what happens five minutes after you die? What happens five seconds? What happens that one second, that split second, what happens after you die? That's what I want us uh, to, to look at this morning. There is a book, I think a book like no other uh, in the Bible. Remember the Bible is a, not a singular book as much as it is a collection of 66 books and the one book I believe that that speaks very loudly about the subject of death uh, in a very unique way is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes some of you know we started the year with it we looked at it we said a time for and we looked at some of these great themes uh, that Ecclesiastes uh, talks about a time for this a time for that that was January and February I think it spilled over into March if I recall correctly. Uh, look at Ecclesiastes and this passage here It says this about death, there's an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. A lot of us are thinking about evil today. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Continuing on, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. The ancient Israelites, they had a word for it. The Hebrew word was sheol. It means uh, down below, underneath the underworld. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Another word from Ecclesiastes about death is in the 10th verse of chapter 9. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in sheol to which you are going how can that stark reality of death make make this life make sense and we talked about the writer of Ecclesiastes how much um, cynicism he brings to bear but one of the great passages I think I quoted at every funeral and you hear me preach it often I interlace it in my teaching uh, quite a bit it's just a hallmark passage for me it's also in Ecclesiastes and it says that God God himself has set eternity in our hearts whose heart every body's heart. There's sort of a, an instinct that all of us have in us that, that calls us to be with God, that says that we are created uh, to have a home. You can study nature. You can study uh, the creatures and animals like uh, the homing pigeon. If you look at this, you'll see that the homing pigeons were actually used in history by the ancient Romans, by Genghis Khan, uh, to help send messages. Thousands of miles away. The, the dung beetle actually navigates uh, via the Milky Way and travels uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles. Uh, the, the gray whale, 
will give birth in Cabo San Lucas. And what are the chances that she would swim some 12,000 miles back to where she's from after this? Uh, she, she, they do it every single time, some 12,000 miles. She finds her way back home. Mommy penguins, Hollywood has uh, depicted this, but mommy penguins can leave their young with dad for, uh, they do it for like four months at a time. My wife has never trusted me with our little penguins for four months, maybe four days max. But mommy will trust the little ones with dad and she'll go away, the frozen tundra of course, and she will go feed her face and just stuff herself and she'll come back some four months later, 120 plus days later, thousands of miles to the exact same spot, salmon. They hang out and they travel and they'll, they'll leave and they'll go, uh, it's been recorded, some 100,000 miles, uh, rivers and oceans, and go back to the exact same spot. And when the writer of Ecclesiastes, despite the cynical stuff about death, he says that there is an eternity in your hearts, there's a, a homing instinct in you that, that cries out for home that we long for this eternity, that it, when we think about life and we think like Madonna from the 80s, that we're just living in this material world, that that's just it. There's that homing instinct that tells you that there's something more to this, this longing for God, this spiritual dimension which undergirds everything is in you. It's this homing instinct that says, I am built not for me, I am built for another and I will never find rest unless uh, I find it in God, the one who created me, the one who made me. There's a poem related to death, and it, it says, uh, it's kind of famous, uh, and it talks about um, going gently into the good night. Rage, rage, rage against the dawning of the light. This rage, by the way, is not a good philosophy to live by. How much rage can you take? We're asking ourselves that right now. Counselors' offices are full. People are attending church this week to sit. Some churches I know have opened their doors so people can sit and think about the rage that they feel related to the evil in our world. Rage, or go, go gently into the good night. Rage, rage against the dawning of the light. It's not a good philosophy to live by. Hey, what are you doing today? I'm raging, raging against uh, the light. Hey, in between that, honey, make sure you pick up the kids. In between that raging, don't forget to pick up the kids uh, at school today. So what do you think of death? Every three seconds somebody dies. That, If you do the math, that's 11,000 people per hour die. Will you die in the prime of your life? Will you die at a ripe old age? Isn't that everybody's hope? Will you die when you're young? You will Die. Here are some epitaphs, some tombstones, and what some actual tombstones in our land have said over the last 20 years. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Another one. Here lies John Yeast, an actual man. Pardon me for not rising. Another tombstone. This is from a hypochondriac. I told you all I was sick. And this one. Solomon Pease, an actual man in New Hampshire. Pease is not here, only the pod. Pease shelled out, went home to be with God. Actual tombstones, what will your tombstones say? What do you think of death? Psychologists, experts tell us that it's our, really our greatest fear. Some surveys have said back in like the 80s that public speaking 
as our worst fear, but death really is it. Uh, it transcends culture that it's our, our worst fear, all of us. Gallup did a poll not too long ago, and 78% of Americans believe in heaven. And just about 78% of Americans believe they got a good shot to go. The same Gallup poll, 60% of Americans believe in hell, and only 4% of Americans think they've got a good shot to go. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 16. I want us to look today, and I'm going to give you three things, because remember, hope you hadn't forgotten already, we're asking, what will happen after you die? What happens just a, that split second after you die? And I want to give you three truths from this passage, Luke 16. And we're going to throw a, a lot of Bible at you today in this short amount of time. And if you have a pen and paper, be a good one, good day to look. Luke 19, Luke 16, sorry, verse 19 Jesus tells this story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. He starts this story with a rich man. And this rich man could evade everything. What does money bring? Some of you uh, religious people, Christian people, probably think of the Bible verses already. But what does money bring? What can it not bring? If you have money, the Bible doesn't not teach this. If you have money, it can open doors. If you have money, it can bring you cloud. It can give you acclaim. If you have money, you can purchase things and, and kind of run over people and, and seemingly rule over them. Money can allow you to evade responsibility um, in a heart that's corrupted by it. But this rich man had evaded a lot. Notice Jesus uses some details here. He, he feasted sumptuously. He had an awful lot. But he introduces us quickly to another man, the next verse. It says this, that, and at his gate, the rich man's gate, just outside, laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. My daughter and I don't like to think about this, but in those times in first century Palestine, dogs weren't beloved family household pets. Imagine, thank God for the evolutionary process, right? How many of you like your family, your dog is, is part of your family, an important part, the most important part of your family? Raise your hand. Uh, if Yeah, we got some of you, God bless you. Yeah, that's called human progress. But back then, not so much. They, um, they were parasites, if you will. They were come, come along and would eat and lick sores. This man was a beggar. Why did he beg? He begged because he had to beg. The number of beggars in our land, you know, we're called to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly, Micah 6, 8. That was said so long ago, but it's true today, and it's so needed today for the church. I know some of you, I'm proud of you. I know that uh, you don't drive past, but you look and you talk and you interact with those who are begging on our corners who are um, in need and it's deep and it's complex I know that but I love the simplicity of some of you as I see you follow Christ's commands to care and there are beggars and people beg uh, because of need primarily but they beg because somebody is meeting the need when they beg somebody is there and that is what has happened in this story so Jesus lays it out and he says there's a rich man and there's a poor man and he tells you a little bit about both, but both of them, look at the next passage here. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, the King, Ver King James Version says. Hebrew imagery there for the afterlife. The rich man also died and was buried. What's the common faith? No matter what you have, no matter what you've evaded, 
Death comes to everyone. I lost my father-in-law, Susan's dad, in 2015. From many years before uh, his death that we would not know of, prior to that, uh, he would ask me, the preacher, uh, sometimes to say the prayer before the meal. And he wasn't a church-going man, but had, had a faith in God and just had a sense that he would say, he would raise a wine glass before or after my prayer and say, here's to our health. And I could tell as he was beginning to get frail that he had money. He had a nice hill, a house on the hill in Los Angeles. He had possessions, but he started to get the sense that he was vulnerable, that money could pay doctor's bills, but it couldn't insure. Um, it couldn't insure a long life necessarily. And this rich man had evaded a lot but he was not able to evade death. I want to give you three things in answering the question, what happens after you die? The very moment after you die, number one is this, uh, you will be wide awake. You'll be wide awake. Uh, I've told this story to a few of you before, but when Susan and I were uh, new in our marriage, we were actually new parents. We'd been married a couple of few years and uh, we decided to um, say yes to a conference in Colorado. I'd be speaking, I'd be emceeing, this conference and they were paying for everything and flights and hotel and per diem. I'm like, let's go. And so I talked Susan into bringing the, the new baby who now is 24 years old and weighs about 205 pounds, muscled up. But uh, he was just a little bitty baby and we flew from Coral Gables, Florida to Colorado and we flew in this storm when we arrived in Colorado. Even by Colorado standards, they didn't know uh, if people should be driving. We, we got in a rented van with some other people that at the time we didn't know and they had on the mud stuff on their tires and we were, it was dark. We left a sunny, hot Miami and flew into Colorado and by the time we started going up the mountain, this really bad storm had come and our driver, our van driver couldn't even see. He had to pull over and I had all kind of thoughts. I didn't want to su Susan to see my weakness uh, but I was like, man, we're going to die. We're going to die here. We're going to die with a baby. We sh I shouldn't have brought him a frozen death. I was already Googling, you know, how bad is it if you, if you freeze to death? But our driver somehow, after hours and hours and help, we made it to our destination. And we got in in the wee hours of the morning. I believe, um, though kind of rare for us, I was the first uh, one up. And I remember opening up the blinds. And it was just sudden. I looked out. I didn't, I didn't appreciate any of it the night before. I couldn't see any of it the night before. But I opened the blinds and suddenly I was awakened to this uh, snow-capped mountain peak, which they don't have in Coral Gables, Florida. And I was looking out over this remote alpine beauty and it was just so sudden and so breathtaking. Can I just say, in the midst of your cynicism, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of the evil that runs rampant, in the midst of despair, take time to meditate on this very reality. You will die. And the moment you die, you will be wide awake. And it will be sudden. Jesus taught. He said to a thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say someday. He didn't say tomorrow. He said this day. The brilliant mind Paul would teach in Philippians that to, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So we're answering this question, what will happen uh, after you die? You will be wide awake. And secondly, not only will you be wide awake, you will be filled with enormous gratitude or tremendous regret. Look at Jesus' teaching back in Luke 16. If your Bible's open or on the screen, verse 23 and 24. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, 
Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It will be a sudden awakening. You will be wide awake and you will experience enormous gratitude or tremendous regret. I think of the tremendous regret that Jesus teaches. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his own soul? If he gains everything but loses what matters, what will it ultimately, ultimately profit a man? That's the side of the equation, tremendous regret. But the side of enormous gratitude. No eye has seen. No ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Look at the next verse of what Jesus would teach in verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Let me get ahead of some of you because I know there is many objections on this hard subject that uh, in our feebleness and our frailty, we can't really get our minds around. Um, And it doesn't go well with our American sensibilities. We'll talk about that in a second. But this rich man was not in hell because of his wealth. I wanna be very clear. In fact, uh, he was there because he resisted. He was there because he rejected opportunity after opportunity to live his life for God. He was there because he wanted to do things on his own. He was there because spiritual opportunities were laid before him and he said, I want none of this. He lived life for himself. He was probably a narcissist. He was self-occupied. In fact, by the way, just digging deeper into the story, the the name Lazarus uh, means God help him. And there's no indication that this rich man helped him. So he lived for himself and that's the reason Uh, for him to have this tremendous regret. It's not because he was wealthy. Um, Read the Bible and learn the whole story. But Abraham himself, even in this story, Abraham himself was a very wealthy man. It's easy to argue that he was probably top three wealthiest uh, men in all of the Old Testament. So it wasn't his wealth that kept him from getting there. Uh, It was his rejection. So on one side, this enormous gratitude. No eye, no ear, no mind has seen or heard or conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for eternity with you. But then on the flip side is this tremendous regret, this chasm that can't be separated in any way because he tried to profit only for himself. He rejected God. He resisted the truth found in God and the invitation of all these spiritual opportunities that were laid before him. So first, what will happen when you die? You will, number one, you will be wide awake. Number two, you will be filled with enormous gratitude or tremendous regret. Let me answer a few questions uh, that are common. A lot of you have sent stuff my way on some of these uh, courageous conversations, some of these hard subjects. I'll try to hit a few of them. And again, my job, I say it often, is not to feed you, but it's to uh, create a hunger in you that you will want to learn um, on your own. And so let me tackle a a few uh, questions. The the first question is, will we have bodies in heaven? The, The answer is yes. I love the resurrection story. 
I love the resurrection story for uh, all the reasons in the world, really. In fact, um, if uh, we disagree on this subject that we're preaching about today, I know you'll show me grace. All these courageous conversations we're having uh, can be confusing. They can be divisive. But I think we ought to learn together. I think we ought to learn with humility. James 3 says that we need to be open to reason. We need to be pure and peaceable as we learn and as we learn from each other. So thank you for checking my facts and searching the scriptures yourself and working with me here. I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Um, I don't know it all, but here's what I know that the scripture teaches. I love the resurrection and, and none of these conversations we're, we're having is the linchpin of, of my theology or what our church is built on. It's built on Jesus. It's built on the fact that he is the only man in human history that predicted uh, his death and resurrection and he pulled it off. And uh, post-resurrection, it, the Bible tells us that they noticed Jesus with his, uh, his nail-pierced hands and his wounds and his scars. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Yet, Jesus would ascend into heaven. He would transcend time and space. Kind of cool. He would walk through doors without having to open them. Jesus would teach. When he was on the cross, he would live. He would pray. Actually, that's the best word. He would pray. Father, into, finish the sentence. Father, into your hands, I commend my, I commend my spirit. Here's what the scripture teaches. It teaches this about our death. That when you die, you will be wide awake. You will be filled with enormous gratitude or tremendous regret. But you will be in the presence of the Lord. Your, your soul, your spirit, your true self will be in eternity. But 1 Thessalonians 4 and other places teach us that our resurrected bodies, and aren't some of us glad, some of us are really glad, that one day we'll have perfect bodies. You're, you've been trying, you've been working hard, you've been eating kale salads from Chick-fil-A. Don't do that. You've been doing yoga, you've been doing Pilates, you've been working hard and it just ain't working like you want it to work. And one day you'll have this resurrected body. But immediately right after you die, your soul, your spirit, the true you will be uh, in your eternal place. But your resurrected body, 1 Thessalonians 4, it will come later. Into your hands I commit my spirit, your soul, your true you. So that begs the question, if resurrected, the, the glorified bodies and the ultimate consummation, if that will be at a later date, well, what about, uh, as it says in First Thessalonians 4, the trump will sound, the dead in Christ will rise. Well, what about, uh, what about crea- cremation? Uh, what about death in uh, other ways? What about decay? And it's a simple answer that this uh, provides for me no consternation in giving you an answer. If God could bring life to Adam from the dust of the earth, he can create from the dust of the ground again as he wants a resurrected body for you. And the third question is this, will we recognize each other in heaven? Hear me now, yes. One of the great things about heaven is the glorious reunion. And as you've gotten older, aren't sermons about eternity a little different? Remember when you were young, and we love our young people, but you kind of dismissed some of this stuff. It just seems so far-reaching. But now that you got people that are there, don't you think differently? Don't you long for a reunion? It's a great honor to be a pastor. And one of those times where I just don't feel worthy is to stand with you at a funeral. But I know some of you ache, and I know some of you are thinking of those loved ones now. And we will recognize each other in this story Uh, The rich man recognizes Lazarus. Lazarus and Abraham recognize the rich man. The disciples recognize Jesus. And we will recognize each other. What happens after you die? Number one, we're saying uh, that you will be wide awake. Number two, 
that you will be filled with enormous regret, or, or I'm sorry, enormous gratitude or tremendous regret. And the third thing we're saying is that you will reflect on your new life with crystal clarity. How many of you are confused about your future? How many of you got something that's just stumping you right now? You don't know which way to turn. How many of you, uh, you've processed some of these courageous conversations and you're not sure where you land or not really sure what, you know, I mean, there's, there's several things that can be confusing in life. Your own life, what's the purpose of your life? Should you do what your parents say? Should you go into the ministry? Should you become this? Should you become that? Which direction uh, should you take? There could be some confusion for many of you this morning, but there will be a moment right after you die, when you will be wide awake, when you will be filled with enormous gratitude or tremendous regret, and you will reflect on your life with tremendous clarity. Back to Jesus' story in Luke chapter 16. He says this in verse 27 and 28. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Suddenly, a man who had lived only for himself. Suddenly, a man who, because he was prospering, because he was getting what he wanted, because uh, he had material possessions, because he feasted sumptuously around the table, because he lived for himself, he didn't think about other people. And so, he, a man's not in hell because he's rich, as we've said, but riches can have such a corrosive effect on us he didn't live for other people can I just stop and say real quickly if there's any confusion or any point of disagreement in this sermon listen to me don't live for yourself don't live only for yourself get clarity I think it's one of the reasons we gather for worship it's one of the powerful components when I'm preaching one of the other uh, younger ministers are preaching I always challenge myself challenge them to give people hope and offer perspective and that's what the scripture does because we run and we scurry and we hurry and we live in this world of empirical data what we can touch taste hear smell and see and where we forget what really matters and this story Jesus wants you to know that you should get clarity now on what matters because there is coming a day. There's coming a day when you will reflect on your life with crystal clarity. And this is an eternal thing. This is an irreversible thing. So uh, my wife would love it if I'd take the balance of our time and just preach about heaven. Uh, She would be mad at me and I'll hear it from her later today if I don't do this. So I don't want to live with that, okay? So read the book, Randy Alcorn, read, read the book, Heaven. Uh, what I'm about to talk to you about, what I have talked to you about, it'll spark a lot. And I want you to learn what the scripture uh, teaches about that side of eternity. But here's a question that I want us to ask today. And it's this, can you really believe this stuff about hell? Can, can, you, can you believe it? Is hell real? Uh, You heard the Gallup poll, 78% believe in heaven, but only 60% believe in hell. And only 4% of those respondents think they got a good chance to go. So let me give you three uh, views of hell. Um, Now, when it comes to the afterlife, uh, there are folks, and I know some people among us, who don't believe in any afterlife. You believe that when you die, that's it. There's no more. Uh, We're mere uh, mechanics. We're... um, animals it's it's just it back to the dust we go um, some believe I, I, I don't know that there's many today even though we um, 
pepper our conversations with these references. There's something kind of innate in our humanity that wishes this was true or fears that it's true. But some of you believe in some type of reincarnation. You're going to come back. You're living this life. You'll have another chance and a chance after that. You're going to come back as like a cow or a quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys or something. Uh, you're, you're coming back. But here are the traditional views um, among Christian people. And by the way, uh, I would say study Buddhism, study Hinduism, study Islam, study the other religions. There is some, um, there's some deeply uh, painful and troubling things about uh, the teaching of, on this side of, of the ledger. But the traditional view of Christianity is this, that uh, you're given a life to live. And you uh, will one day after your life, when you die, you will, uh, you will face either eternal glory known as heaven or you'll, you'll face eternal conscience, a separation uh, from God for all of eternity. The second view beyond the traditional view is annihilationism. Turn to the person next to you and say that out loud. Even if you've got several feet from somebody, just say annihilationism, okay? Annihilationism. Now, there are some places in the, in the scripture. I was talking to a guy at Cups this week about this who talked about it, and he's right. There's a place in Daniel chapter 12. Uh, there's some teaching in Psalm 37. Uh, but this to me, is, is it's not a point of confusion. It's real clear in uh, studying that, uh, that this is a reference to not of the, the wicked being eternally uh, gone into a vast sea of nothingness, but it's, um, it, it's being separated from Israel, from their land, from their people. The, the third view beyond the traditional view or annihilationism is universalism. And this is that everybody ultimately will be saved. Um, I have some progressive Christian friends who um, um, hold to this view or I would say getting, uh, getting close uh, to this view. And I'm not here to insult everybody. I think you can uh, be a Christian and not be conservative. But that needs to be said, especially in a church like this. My goal is not to make conservative Christians. My goal is to be involved and join people in the power of the Spirit uh, under the word of God to make disciples of Christ. But a, a guy I know uh, of, a pastor in Portland, John Mark Comer, says that in his pastoral experience, progressive Christianity is the next step to post-Christianity. And so, you know, you take out any objectionable feature uh, that the Bible teaches. You form and shape God into the view that you want. Universalism, you know, there's this passage, Paul tells Timothy, that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Hey, pastor, doesn't God get what he wants? I mean, if God wants everybody to be saved, and that is his heart, I don't dispute that, but doesn't God get what he wants? And so uh, this is a, a, a train ride into universalism. So the question, like we could talk about this all day and share different views and puncture holes uh, in them. Even my traditional view, uh, there are things that I don't know that I can only speculate about. But ultimately, uh, beyond the question of why should I believe any of this is this, what did Jesus teach? Again, I'm going with him every single time. So look what he said in Matthew chapter 13. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says this, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown to the sea and gathered fish of every kind when it was full. Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteousness and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what Jesus taught about eternity, about hell in particular. There would, be, um, there would be 
emotional suffering. The phrase gnashing of teeth can be problematic. I think it's deeply uh, misunderstood in our, ta- in our time. The, the connotations is a narcissist or self-preoccupied uh, person who's lived only for themselves and then they have regret. Oh, it's the ugh. It's, the, it's an emotional component, not necessarily a physical thing. The gnashing of the teeth is the deep regrets that you experience for living life only for yourself, for having opportunity after opportunity and not heeding it, only living for yourself. There's emotional pain there. There's also relational pain. There is uh, this um, total and uh, total utter darkness, the scripture says, in many references. So there's, there's emotional pain, the gnashing of teeth. There's relational pain, utter darkness. It means no community. It means no connection. It means loneliness. Then there is a, um, a spiritual component to the pain that, that one experiences in hell. Second Thessalonians um, verse, chapter 1 and verse 9, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Relational pain, spiritual pain. Now there's a lot of questions that um, come up in this regard and I, there's no way I have time uh, to tackle them in, in, in its fullness. And again, there's just some things that I don't know. But let's say you're, you know, having coffee and someone comes up to you and they don't believe in God and they don't believe in hell like a good number of people, of Americans don't. And they approach you about it and they rattle off some things about hell. Like one, one common objection to hell is, well, everybody's there. And according to these particular verses, everybody suffers the same and it's tremendous suffering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on. And let me just say this very quickly. I do believe in what the scripture teaches is clear that there is this suffering. It's relational and it's spiritual uh, and it's emotional. I believe, of course, because of all that, there are physical components to it as well. But it's interesting to think about what could be a metaphor in this and what could be literal. Some of you are already getting nervous with me here, but let me, let me say this. In uh, Hebrews 10, 29, it says that God is a consuming fire. Well, none of you think that God is some sort of cosmic Bunsen burner. What does that mean? Consuming fire means it's his judgment. We don't take that away, but we don't have to go hardcore literal with it as well. When Jesus, uh, before the consummation, it says that he'll be surrounded by flames. He'll have a sword in his mouth. No one, I don't think, in the room would think that Jesus will be unable to talk because he has a sword in his mouth. But it's a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of eternal judgment. And that's the teaching in this, in this passage. Uh, read Matthew chapter 11. This is one of the stabs I would take at it. If someone approaches you, they're like, oh, Hitler. so you're saying the Bible teaches that Hitler's gonna suffer like average Joe. The Bible, look at me, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, if you read Matthew 11, you'll see Matthew 11, two through 24, it talks about how there's different judgments uh, from different people. God will handle just judgment. He will be just in his judgments. He will handle people according to what we deserve. I reserve that in his goodness and in his judgment to, to tackle that. So why believe what we believe about hell? Number one, I'll give you three reasons. Because Jesus taught it. Because justice requires it. And because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He sent his only son to save us from it. And he did not send his only son to save us from a metaphor. He sent his only son. And so 
again, I don't understand it all, but I want to preach it. I feel called to preach it because I love you and God loves you. There is God's love. Everybody wants to sign up for that, but there is God's judgment. Look at Romans chapter 2 and look what it says. Because you were stubborn and refused to turn from your sin, you were storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. We can't subtract that. Look, this week has been a unique week. I have sat with some of you. Someone came to see me and couldn't even talk. And they're overwhelmed with personal loss and they're overcome with the evil in the world. And we look and we say, oh, you know, here's a young man whose dad left him, whose mom was addicted to drugs, whose friends were none or they bullied him, whose grandmother was ill-equipped to raise him, who apparently police pepper sprayed parents when they were trying to get into the school to save their own. All of us, all of us have to be careful, Romans 12, not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. But look, there is no love without justice. Let's trust God in his justice. He will do what is right. There's different levels of judgment. Another bad thinking. And by the way, just I'm, I want to ask you if uh, anybody wants to run up on me later. How can you have outer darkness and eternal flame? Any, any, anybody want to take a stab at that? I mean, the, the, the sun, you, you won't tell in the second row up here. I mean, if, it's, if they're both uh, being literal, then how can you have a flame? A week ago Sunday, I sat down with my oldest son. Uh, everybody was else, else was out of town. I went to get dinner. I never cooked dinner. I can go buy it. And we sat down, and right when we sat down to watch Golden State and Dallas Mavericks, uh, the power went out. And our first thought was, uh-oh. And I remember thinking, where does mom put the candles? I found them because there's plenty of candles. You don't have to go far in our house to find candles. Where did she put the lighter to the candles? Well, that took a little while. We stumbled in darkness, but we began to light things up. You can't have, the moment you light a flame, you no longer have outer darkness. So God is a consuming fire. Look, uh, do I believe that hell is real? Yes. Do I believe that hell is eternal? Yes. Uh, Do I believe there's pain and punishment involved? Yes. But do I believe like the rotisserie chicken thing that this is some divine torture chamber? Can I just say no, not by any means at all. And so, why believe this? Number one, Jesus taught it. Justice requires it. You know that you're crying out for justice with the evil in the world. And you and I can mete it out, but never as good and never as justly as God. A few uh, final verses as Lauren and the team come up. A few final verses about the character and nature of God. I mean, we'll just roll these real fast. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Next passage. In Job 34, 19, who shows God, who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. And lastly, Acts 10 or two more. He said to them, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. The gospel is for all. Eternal life is for everybody. Nobody is excluded. It is in his desire to save all who repent. And then Romans 10, 11, the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so would you stand with me in a couple of thoughts before we pray and before we go. What will happen the moment after you die? 
you will be wide awake. You will be faced with enormous gratitude or tremendous regret. And you will reflect on your life with crystal clear clarity. There's a heaven, eternal home with God, and there's a hell apart from Him for eternity. There's no bridging the gap. We can trust a God of justice with our eternity. Have you believed? Have you accepted? He's laying out spiritual opportunities in front of you. And in love, I want to say today, say yes to Him. And for some of you, you haven't been baptized. Emmy, if we can, real quick, only one service today. I can go as long as I want. Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon. Uh, we're almost done. Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon ever preached. Uh, look at what it says there. Acts 2. Emmy's like, no, we can't. The sermon is over. Um, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse uh, 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that very day. Can I just say this? We've, uh, pun intended, we've watered down baptism. We receive Jesus. We say yes to him. But the first thing that he wants us to do is to be baptized. Philip is in the desert on a chariot. He's with the Ethiopian leader. And it says this in Acts chapter 8. It says, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized right then there were no loopholes no policies or procedures or protocols no lengthy process right then and there some of you need to say yes to Jesus some of you have already said yes but you need to say yes to baptism call me let's do this 601-613-2312 let me pray for you father I pray that we would think in our lives we lack clarity it's muddy and it's unclear And some of us are believing the lie that there's no God, there's no creator, that there's no redeemer or sustainer. Some of us fashion you in our own image. We've stripped you down. We've said he's only love, he's only love, and it all works out in the end. And we're saying no to these opportunities that you've given us. And I know many more of us, uh, these are hard truths, these are hard realities to think about loneliness and separation in eternity, to think about emotional and relational pain, to think about outer darkness, to think about this great chasm of regret. But Lord, you are just and you are good. You desire all to be saved, to all who would call out on you. You show no partiality. You break down walls. And Lord, everybody in this room today has been given an opportunity. And I pray that we would make the most of it. In Jesus we pray. Bless these tithes and offerings. Amen.